The text of this morning's sermon is Galatians 5. Back in Galatians this morning, and as we come to the end of chapter 5, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter this morning. I'll be reading verses 16 through 25 of Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. If you want to also find Romans 7, we're going to be going kind of back and forth between Galatians 5 and Romans 7, if you want to put your finger in the Bible and uh, take note of that. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, as we come to your word now, Lord, I pray that you would use it to... convict us, and to comfort us. Father, I pray that we would see Christ here. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Americans, we, and and as being raised in America, uh, one of the fundamental things that we're taught ever since we're young is the incredible blessing it is to live in America where we have the freedom to worship God as uh, we please, where we have uh, freedoms that the rest of the world uh, doesn't have for the most part. Uh, We have a unique type of freedom that we're taught to value. And one of the common things when... uh, we think about our fathers and grandfathers who uh, fought for this freedom. Many of them were wounded uh, for this freedom. Many gave their lives so that we can live today free. They fought for another generation that they may be free. But one of the things we hear and rightly so, is that we cannot bask in the glory of our freedom and quit fighting or else we will lose the freedoms that were fought for for us and our children will not experience these same freedoms. I'm sure you've uh, 
heard this discussed, I, I, you probably hold that view, you recognize we can't sit back on our laurels and freedom or our freedoms will be taken away from us. Chapter 5 of this letter to the Galatians is all about freedom. We might think that the type of freedom that our forefathers fought for us that we have in America, that it's going to be totally different with the freedom we get in Christ. That somehow when Christ makes us free, that we no longer have to fight to remain free. That's not true. And we see this right away in Galatians 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, Since it's been a while since we've been in Galatians, I thought it'd be good to kind of preach the whole chapter. We're going to spend the most of our time later, uh, starting in verse 16. But I want us to remember the context of this letter. There's a brand new church in Galatia. The Judaizers came in and began to steal the freedom Christians have in Christ. And here's how he starts. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Christ came and lived and died and was raised so that you and I can live in freedom. That's why he came. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Now, whenever you hear, I mean, we don't use this language very much, but if someone said, Sam, stand firm, what I know that means is, "Uh uh-oh, get ready, because something is going to challenge something I have. Get ready, stand firm. Here, it's like a battle's ready to come. So Christ paid for us that we may be free, but then we're told immediately by Paul, stand firm and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. There's a way we as Christians can live where we actually, in our freedom, walk back into slavery. And Paul basically lays out two different ways he's worried the Galatians are going to do this. Look at verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law and have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Here's what he says. Those of you who are trusting in your own works, in your own righteousness, if you do that, and that's, this, this is the crossroads the Galatian church is at. Am I going to continue believing that Jesus is my righteousness or that I have to create my own righteousness in order for God to receive me into his presence? And he says, if you want to go with your righteousness, you're severed from Christ. 
You can't have him. So he's worried that this church is going to go back in to legalism, back into the belief that the way we please God is by being good enough so that God looks down and says, that's enough. I'll receive you into heaven based on those works. That is not the gospel. That is not true. We don't have any righteousness to offer God. Our greatest deeds are like filthy rags. And our only hope is a righteousness that lies outside ourselves. And according to verse 5, through the help of the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's Jesus Christ. He's our only hope. He's where our righteousness is. And then in verse 6, he says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. I was asking myself the question, what is it about trying to keep the law in your own strength that keeps a person from being a loving person? Because what he says is, is you can go after the law by your own flesh efforts, Or, verse 6, you can have faith that works through love. So that means those who actually live by their own righteousness will be unloving to other people. So I I was asking the question, why is that? Here's a few things that uh, I came up with. What is it about trying to keep the law in our own strength that keeps us from being a loving person when I'm trying to please someone? Let's say there's an event coming up in my, in my house and, and part of my job is to get it ready. Now, full disclosure, Laura does most of the work. But my little part that I'm required to do If there's a time limit and I have to perform and I have to produce, guess what? If you get in my way or if I feel stressed, what am I going to do? I'm not going to feel like a loving person to you because I have to do this. I have to measure up. Also, when I'm doing it in my own strength, in my own righteousness, I can start to feel pretty good. Man, I'm pretty good at this. Why doesn't anyone else do it as good as I do it? You see, real quickly, we become unloving people when we want to walk in our own strength, in our own righteousness. We become critical of others. If you find yourself being critical of others and thinking, I would never do it that way. This is the way I would do it. I can't believe they struggle with that. There's a good chance you are enslaved to your own righteousness. And then another reason why You don't feel loving to others and you're not when you're living this way is because you're constantly deceiving. Because in reality, you know you're not righteous and you have to pretend. And pretending isn't fun. So you have to hide the right, this lack of righteousness from other people, which creates guilt. Someone who's in guilt is one of the most self-centered p- 
people, when they feel guilt, they can overflow in love to others. They're by nature selfish. Whether it's a pity party or arrogance, living according to the law and not according to the Spirit will produce a lack of love. It's the opposite of those looking out for Christ for the righteousness who get to then overflow with love to others. So the second way Paul is worried that they're going to leave the freedom they have. By the way, that first way is slavery. (laughs) It's absolute slavery. It's not freedom. Paul is concerned in a second way, if you look at verse 13, that they're going to use their freedom for licentious living, for just living however they desire. Verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out. You are not consumed by one another. One of the temptations in our freedom in Christ is to believe the lie that since I got forgiveness, now I get to go live it up. I have freedom. It's not freedom. It's slavery. That's what Paul's point is. His goal is that people live free in Christ. If a person turns 18 and says, now I have the freedom to smoke, they love their freedom, they're smoking away, but you get to the end of your life and you're laying in the hospital and you're in a coma state and you're going like this, your freedom actually led to slavery something you don't have control over, something that's harming you. And Paul does not want their freedom to actually lead them into slavery as they run into licentious living. Uh, John Stott was incredibly helpful to me this week, so I'm going to be mentioning him several times. But here's how he sums up walking in the Spirit. Here's what he says. First, if you walk in the Spirit, and this is in verse 13, do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So to walk, the opposite of that is to have self-control over your flesh. The second thing he points to is that we love one another. If we're walking in our freedom, we will have self-control and we'll love one another but through love serve one another. That's the end of verse 13. And then the third thing he points to is the whole law is justified in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. True freedom shows itself in self-control, loving others, and obeying the law of God, which is loving God and loving neighbor. And so we see that the drive of all of chapter 5 is remain free. Fight for your freedom. Fight for it. 
But the first thing we need to ask is, how is this possible? How are you going to have self-control? How are you going to love others rather than be selfish? And how are you going to love God when so often you don't? How can this happen? The first thing we need to do is make sense of the conflict that's within us. And my prayer is that you get to experience the joy I got to experience this week as I understood better the conflict that rages inside me as a Christian. Now, there's going to be two types of people in this room. Those who don't experience the conflict, and you should be concerned for your soul, and those who do, and you should be concerned about where your hope is found. So let's look at the conflict. Paul just warned them, be careful, you might bite and devour each other. Look at verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Now just to remind you what the desires of the flesh, John Stott says it clearly, by the flesh, Paul means what we are by nature and inheritance, our fallen condition. More simply, we may say that the flesh stands for what we are by natural birth, the spirit what we become by new birth, the birth of the spirit. So when Paul's using flesh, he's not talking about just flesh and bones, your body. Your body doesn't make you sin in that sense but it's the nature you were born with, your sinful nature. And he says, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the deeds of the flesh. And his argument is, because they're absolutely opposed to each other. Now that's a big if. You won't gratify the desires of the old man, the us being born in Adam. And and look at what he says. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. They're going that way. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. It's a total tug of war. There is no common ground. They're going in opposite directions. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Christian, do you ever experience the desire to follow God and you're frustrated with the fact that you continue to sin. Is there anyone here that can relate to that? You really want to please God and you really continue to have this tremendous battle with sin. Is there anyone here that can relate to this because two natures live in us now some of you might get uncomfortable when i say that let me define nature your capacity because you have the capacity to gratify the desires of the flesh or to walk by the spirit and glorify god 
There is a colossal war going on inside of you as a Christian that non-Christians don't experience. Non-Christians can have moral battles, but not to the extent Christians do because the morality of a non-Christian doesn't get to the root of the sin problem. The good deeds of non-Christians are still sin. They're done not to the glory of God by faith. But for the Christian, there's this horrible battle that rages inside us. We feel it. And John Stott points to Romans 7, what, where Paul expresses this maybe uh, more, even more clearly than uh, our text in Galatians. So turn with me to Romans 7. Let's look at the conflict. Here's the thing. If we're going to remain free, we have to understand what the conflict is that rages inside us. Does the Bible actually teach that there's two natures inside of us? You might be thinking of 2 Corinthians 5 right now, saying the old is gone, the new is come. Well, does this mean your capacity for sin is gone? No. What it means is you're a new creation like you weren't before. Your capacity to glorify God was zero before your new birth. After your new birth, you're a new creation. And if you know anything about Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he's pleading with them to put to death the old man, Adam, the sin that remains. Here's what he says, Romans 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, that means it's good, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. You have the idea of slavery language. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do what I do not, or for I do, for I do not what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. And if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So the Apostle Paul is talking about this nature that still dwells in him. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, in the old Adam. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do what I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that lives, that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in the members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. What a wretched man am I. Let's just stop here for a minute. This is a sad reality. Paul's describing his life. I have new desires now that I'm a Christian. I want to please God, but on my own, I don't have the power 
to make it happen. I continue to act in ways I do not want to act. Evidently, changed desires weren't enough to turn it into changed action. So he says, what a wretched man am I. We're at a hopeless place if the verse ends right here. John Stott says, every renewed Christian can say, I delight in the law of God. In my inmost self, that is, I love, I love it and long to do it. My new nature hungers for God, for godliness and for goodness. I want to be good and do good. That is the language of every born again believer. But, He has to add by myself, even with these new desires, I cannot do what I want to do. Why not? Because of the sin that dwells in me. Or as the apostle expresses it here in Galatians 5, because of the strong desires of the flesh, which lust against the spirit. The reason why you don't always do what you desire to do is because there's a conflict at war inside of you as we speak. So where's the hope? After Paul cries out in Romans 7, what a wretched man am I? Who will deliver me from this body of death? Here's what he says. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He's saying there's hope in Jesus. Now hold this thought. We're going to come to the very next verse in Romans 8, which Scott's read in a minute. Because remember, if you experience the conflict, the question you need to be asking is, is there any hope? What a wretched man am I? Who's going to deliver me from this horrible situation that I'm in? The slavery we have in our flesh is this. It's two-part. You're under condemnation for your sin. There's not a worse slavery out there than impending judgment. It doesn't matter if you feel good, if at the end of the day, judgment is coming. Go try to enjoy your day when eternal judgment's coming at the end of the day. It's slavery. You can not enjoy it. Your sin has caused a problem. There's impending judgment. And the other worst part about it is you can't change it yourself. You can't stop doing the thing that got you in trouble. We need real rescue. We need real freedom. But look at what he says in Galatians 5.18. Let's see, I think I'm getting behind myself. 
In 5.18 he says, but if you are led by the Spirit. So he just talked about this great conflict. You are not under the law. You're not under this condemnation that's impending. And you're also able now to live in a different way you never lived before. Turn back to Romans 8 and let's look at our hope for those of us who are like Paul that experiences conflict. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ Jesus, there is no more impending judgment, eternal judgment for your sin. That is absolutely unbelievable good news. The question is, is how do I be found in Christ Jesus? And what Paul always makes clear, it's not by being a good enough person, but by looking outside of yourself to Jesus and his righteousness and his work. And when you trust in him by faith, his death for sin is your death. His righteousness is your righteousness. His resurrection is your resurrection. And there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. Here's a good law. Here's a sinful heart. Guess what? Change life doesn't happen. But the Spirit of God comes and does for us what the law could not do because of our sin. Isn't that what it says? For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Jesus not only takes away our sin, but through the Spirit of Christ, we can actually begin to walk in new righteousness. Look at this. For those, verse 5, who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's this conflict that we cannot solve in and of ourselves. We need help from outside of ourselves. And then he just illustrates how different the flesh and the spirit are. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Notice how these are all selfish. Idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things as a continual walk of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. If your life is marked by no battle with that, and yeah, this is just what I do, it's evidence that the Spirit of God is not inside you, because if it was, there would be a great conflict in this area. It would not be true of a Christian that the walk of their life is this list, but what would be true is a conflict would exist. And then he shows the other side. But the fruit of the Spirit, in contrast, isn't selfish, it's selfless love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I love this. Against such things, there is no law. We have laws to curb wrong desires. They don't make laws for love. You can't love. You can't be self-controlled or show kindness or patience. There is no law against such things. There's total freedom. Love all you want. Be patient. All you want to be patient. This list is not Christian to go do this. This is the fruit of the Spirit. The person that has the Spirit of God living inside them, the person who walks with the Spirit, these attitudes, these actions flow as a result of the Spirit out of the new life created in Christ. This isn't a new law. I suppose love is we're called to love, love, love all throughout the New Testament. But this is the fruit. The point here is this is what overflows, emanates out of a believer's life. And so we looked at the conflict. There's still in the Christian remaining sin that's in total opposition to the direction of the Spirit. What are we going to do about it? Crucify your flesh is point two. Remember who you are and what you did. Look at verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Now, John Stott points out that this verse is not a parallel verse to Galatians 2.20, which says, I've been crucified with Christ. Our verse says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In Galatians 2.20, the action of the verb was the sinner was acted upon, Paul was acted upon, in Christ's death, had benefits for Paul. But in this text, the person doing the action is the believers. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Here's his point. It's an illustration. Paul 
is illustrating something Jesus illustrated. Remember when Jesus says in Luke 9.23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow me. Jesus says, if you want to be a follower of Christ, pick up your cross. And Paul's point, he brings this to the logical conclusion, you don't pick up your cross to carry it around and bear your cross and spin circles. If you're carrying a cross, you're going to a place to be crucified. And what Paul is saying is, listen, Christians, when you heard Christ preached and you trusted in him, here's what you did. You looked at your sinful life all that it was, everything you knew knew to be wrong, and you looked at Jesus' life, you felt conviction for sin, a desire to live this new way, and when you trusted in him by faith and repented, the illustration is you took your old self over to that cross, you put him up there, the old Adam. You see, if you're carrying a cross, you carry it to the place of crucifixion. You crucified It's past tense. It's in the aorist tense, which means it's an action, a decisive action in the past. And he's saying, Christian, you already nailed your old self to the cross. And John Stott points out one of the most helpful things here. What do we know about crucifixion? The first thing he says is it's pitiless. If you're dying on a cross, there's shame involved. Criminals are meant to be crucified. Criminals are meant to die on the cross. So he's saying, Christians, you nailed yourself to the cross. You want never to look at this old Adam and say, oh, I kind of feel bad for him. The point of crucifixion is that it ends in death. That A person dies on the cross. And so Stott points out that we don't pity our old self on the cross. That when we believed in him, that's where we nailed it. He said, secondly, our rejection of the old nature will be painful as is crucifixion. It's painful to die to your selfishness. And thirdly, third aspect of crucifixion, the rejection of our old nature is to be decisive. You don't nail something to the cross to just kind of punish it for a little bit. You put it there so that it's destroyed and killed. And here's what Stott says. Although death by crucifixion was a lingering death, it was a certain death. Criminals who were nailed to a cross did not survive. John Brown draws out the significance of this fact for us. Crucifixion produced death, not suddenly, but gradually. True Christians do not succeed in completely destroying it, that is the flesh, wall here below on earth. But they have fixed it to the cross and they are determined to keep it there until it expires. And then here's what Stott says. 
The Greek verb is in the aorist tense indicating that this is something we did decisively at the moment of our conversion. When we came to Jesus Christ, we repented. We crucified everything we knew to be wrong. We took our old self-centered nature with all of its sinful passions and desires and nailed it to the cross. And this repentance of ours was decisive, as decisive as crucifixion is. So Paul says, if we crucified the flesh, we must leave it there to die. We must renew every day this attitude towards sin of ruthless, uncompromising rejection. And the language of Jesus, as Luke records it, every Christian must take up his cross daily and then get the warning of this wise old man. So widely is this biblical teaching neglected that it needs to be further enforced. The first great secret of holiness lies in the decree and decisiveness of our repentance. If besetting sins persistently plague us, it is either because we have never truly repented or because having repented, we have not maintained our repentance. It is as if, as having nailed our old nature to the cross, we keep wistfully returning to the scene of its execution. We begin to fondle it and caress it and to long for its release, even to try to take it down again from the cross. We need to learn to leave it there. When some jealous or proud or malicious or impure thoughts invade our mind, we must kick it out at once. It is fatal to begin to examine it and consider whether we're going to give in or not. We have declared war on it. We are not going to resume negotiations. We have settled the issue for good. We are not going to reopen it. We have crucified the flesh and are never going to draw the nails out of it. Paul's point is, we need to make decisive action in our repentance. When we trusted in Christ, we put our old self on the cross so that it would die there. When we get ourselves into trouble, and this is when we begin to feel sorry for that flesh, and go start to think, well, maybe I can just, you're going to fall if you do that. Paul's point is, remember who you are and what you did when you believed. You nailed it to the cross. How are we going to do this? I wish we're running out of time. I could go to Romans 8. I'll just read this one part. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. And then he goes on, For all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. You know what the opposite of a son is? A slave. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. 
fearing condemnation, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. We are children of God. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. You can know that you're a son or daughter of God if your life is marked by taking your old Adam to that cross and keeping it there until it dies. If you experience that suffering of crucifixion in that battle and you're waging it by the power of the Spirit, praise God, you're heirs with Christ. Some of you, when you experience the conflict, wonder, I can't be a Christian. Look at this conflict I have on the inside. And Paul says in Romans 8, that conflict, if you're suffering, meaning your old self is suffering the attack of your spirit-empowered battle against sin, then it's a surefire reality. You could not do this in your flesh. You could only do this in Jesus Christ who gives you the spirit. Christian, praise God that although we could never do it, God in his salvation not only paid for our sins, but gave us the spirit to help us be in the process of keeping our old self on the cross and waiting for the day when finally we will not sin again. Crucify the flesh. The last thing, and I'm just going to have to summarize it. Walk by the spirit. Here's how we do it. Look at verse 12. 25. If we live by the Spirit, so that's contingent, the if, and what he means by live is he means eternal life. If we have eternal life, it's an eschatological living in the future. If we have life by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here's what, here's what I want to give you. To walk with the Spirit has two aspects to it, according to Galatians 5. One is passive and one is active. Look at verse 18. We're told in verse 16 we're supposed to walk by the Spirit. In verse 18, we find out what it looks like a little bit. But if you are led by the Spirit of God, that's something the Spirit does to us. Like a shepherd leads the sheep. If you're led by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But then... In this verse, let us keep in step with the Spirit. This is our action. The Holy Spirit comes down, and in a sense, he makes a line. And he says, this is the way you walk. Follow me. Get in line. Get in step with me. And that's something you have to do. You can't do it in your own strength. But as the Spirit leads you and even engages your heart and your desires and and produces desires, we're called to walk in line because you want to know something? You can walk the other way. You can gratify the desires of the flesh and be in slavery. In your freedom in Christ, you can enslave yourself in sin and not walk in your freedom. So in review, let us fight to 
Live in our freedom in Christ. Fight for your freedom in Christ. Every day, take up your cross. How are you going to do that? You're going to understand the conflict inside of you. You're going to understand what Christ did for you. You're going to continue in the crucifixion of your sin nature, the old self in Adam. And thirdly, the only way you can do it is walking by the Spirit. He will lead you and He'll lay down the way and you need to get in line. If you're here today and you're saying, you know what? I don't, I, I don't experience this battle. I don't know if you heard the good news in that sermon, but the good news is this. You can't be saved by becoming good enough. The people whom God saves are those who recognize they don't have any righteousness to offer God. And they come to a point of utter desperation and they cry out, what a wretched man am I? Who can save me from this body of death? And the Holy Spirit says through Paul's words in Romans uh, chapter 8, or chapter 7, that it's through Jesus Christ our Lord. He paid the price so that you don't have to suffer for your sins in eternal hell. And he also gives us the Spirit so that we can begin to put to death the old man and begin to actually live unselfish lives, loving others and loving God. And the way you get in on that is not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. By saying, "That's my Christ is my only hope. He is my only hope. If you want to turn and crucify this part of your life and say, that's what I need, you turn by faith. And we're told in these texts that the Spirit is the one that even leads that faith. Praise God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you, thank you that we can know something about the battle that wages within. That even in the midst of battle, we can find comfort if the battle's real and it's really being waged, that this is a sign that though our crucified self is dying slowly, it will be dead one day. Lord, that's our hope. We pray, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen.